giant of limitless power at man's command. And where was it science found that giant? In the atom, a particle so infinitely small that it takes over a hundred billion billion atoms to make up the head of a pin. This is Out of the Basement, a podcast dedicated to radiation medicine. This is Dr. Jason back to stacking bottles of maple syrup down here in the Vermont Mountain basements, and I think it is time to finally finish the supervision episode, which is something I started, well, I guess I started working on this episode technically five years ago, maybe six years ago, whenever I became acutely aware of the concept of supervision as it is defined by various entities from the United States government to our legacy professional societies and everyone who has a keyboard and an opinion. What that means for us and how we got here and so on and so forth is a very confusing and convoluted and twisted story that there is no, the spoiler is that there is no stone tablet telling us precisely what is right or what is wrong, but there are various maps out there that we can use and read the tea leaves, which is what many of us are doing anyway. But I'm going to desperately try to keep this one tight for once. We'll see how that goes. And this concept of supervision is very controversial and misunderstood for untold number of reasons. Usually, just like always, it's mostly money and ego, which is the essence of American medicine and life in general. But the my goal to frame why I would do something like this is to, one, help people who have no idea of why we fight about this get involved in the conversation and, as always, reduce information asymmetry. And I think that's always what my intent is, is that if it weren't for the internet, I would have no one to talk about these concepts. So all of these debates and things, these are so niche and siloed that there is very few people that I could drive in my car. If I get in my car right now, try to find somebody to talk to about this. In in Vermont, I can think of five people, maybe, and I would have to probably drive at least 30 minutes to find them, maybe an hour. And I want more people to debate this from a place of understanding and knowledge, because I could be wrong about many things. I Let me rephrase that. I'm definitely wrong about things, but it's the unknown unknowns that I don't like being wrong about. And the more people who can get up to speed and have their own independent thoughts and opinions and tell me about them or anyone else, the better we're all going to be. That uh, they have a term for that. I think that's free market something, maybe. I don't know. But that's item one for why I would do an episode like this. And item two would be there's a lot of people who seemingly have strong opinions on this, but don't really understand it. So there's a lot of, and this is true of life in general, there's a lot of people who have been told something by people who they perceive to be an authority or people who they trust for other reasons. And those people have an opinion and then that becomes your opinion. And if you're going to tell me I'm wrong or other people that they're wrong, I don't want the rationale if we dig one level deeper to be, well, so-and-so told me. That's not, it's not good enough. That's not how this works. If you're going to go to school forever and train forever, and be licensed to play God, which is what medicine is, you better have your own opinions. And you can't just, now there is where our brains are finite and you can't have an independent opinion arrived at independent research for literally everything. We have to rely on experts and things. But if you're going to fight about it, you got to have more. You can have an opinion from an expert, but you can't die on a hill about it if you don't know why. At least that's what I believe. The first place to start is with definitions. And the reason being is that I think increasingly with the way that this country has been moving in terms of how medicine is practiced has made our perceptions, and by our I'm using doctor is true for everyone, but specifically doctors and specifically for my generation or younger, I'm technically a geriatric millennial, but the way we perceive how medicine quote-unquote runs or operates is not necessarily the case. And I'm, I'm painting in very broad strokes, and I apologize for that. This is how I thought of things, because I didn't understand any of this. I'm a first-generation college kid. I didn't even know what college credits were. So when I went to undergrad, I knew credits were a thing. I knew you needed them. I didn't know what those were. And 
I, I think I didn't even figure them out until after I was already in college. So just to be really clear about when I say those things, it's mostly these are things that I remember being ignorant about. And I will tell you that because that's how the, this life works. And the people who don't want to say they're wrong or they didn't know things, you should steer clear of those folks. Remember, I did not know what an undergraduate college credit was, and I had to learn. And so that's what this is. The concept of supervision is tied tightly to how people perceive the practice of medicine in America as regulated, meaning that the way it is talked about, the way it is viewed, in my opinion, is increasingly or almost exclusively like how we talk about driving a car, like a driver's license and a speed limit. And the to practice medicine, it's state by state, which is a problem, which has always been a problem. And COVID and the telehealth stuff really exacerbated that. I am a proponent of a national medical license for this reason. But in this moment, you can only, having a medical doctorate is only part one, right? We all should hopefully know this, but so you can't just go practice medicine after you graduate medical school and you need to get a medical license and it is done on a state-by-state basis. And each state has various regulations for what is required to get a, a independent medical license. They have changed over the years. They are increasingly more homogenous now than they used to be, but they usually require at least a year or two of graduate medical education. So you do not need to finish any residency to have a license to practice medicine. The only thing you do need, and I think this is true for every state, is some amount of graduate medical education. Now, it seems to me most states have moved more towards two years of GME. Back when I started, which was actually not that long ago, it feels like in a blink of an eye, but there, it used to be much more widespread. You only needed one year of supervised training of graduate medical education before you're eligible for the license. You obviously also needed to pass USMLE step one, two, and three, and there might have been other stuff, I don't know. But to have a license to practice medicine, that's basically what you need. You need to graduate from an accredited medical school, and obviously there's MDO, all those things, but an accredited school that is eligible for this. And then you need to have a year or two of supervised graduate medical education. You need to pass your boards. Then you can get a license to practice medicine, and that license is only valid in that state. So if you have, for me, I hold licenses in Vermont, New Hampshire, New York, and Connecticut. If I wanted to practice medicine in Massachusetts, I am legally not allowed to. Now, there, after the pandemic, there are exceptions, things, it's very murky. It's always been murky. It's more murky now. But so that is true for all of us. Then, and that's a whole season of episodes in and of itself. But then, so where supervision ties into is it feels like a law. And what I mean by that is we are talking about supervision. Whenever we have this conversation, it is presented like there is something that you must do or a way you must practice this type of medicine, or there are consequences if you do not. And it is viewed about or talked about like the speed limit. So if you were to get on a highway that had a 55 mile an hour speed limit and you were going 70 miles an hour and a police officer saw you and clocked you, you would get pulled over and you would get a fine or go to 170, you'd go to jail. But there is a consequence for you being told you have to do, you have to drive at a certain speed you did not, you exceeded that speed, there's a legal consequence with a punishment for that behavior. That is how supervision is talked about in radiation medicine, and that is totally incorrect. And the reason that is incorrect is that the all of these things are tied to health insurance, and specifically Medicare and Medicaid. So if you go back 100 years, there was no insurance. Blue Cross Blue Shield started in Texas with some school teachers who, that, that, go look it up. The insurance was invented by some school teachers in Texas, Blue Cross Blue Shield. And health insurance, or the way things are paid for, is not medicine. Those are two separate things. And supervision is tied to CMS. And if you're going to accept payment from the government, says, we will pay you for these things, but it's under these conditions. And now the private carriers have adopted that so then you can basically go down the, the rabbit hole from there. CMS, the government is, as per usual, the centralized sort of place to look at for the laws of the land or the regulation of the land. And that's where this started, is that if you're going to bill the government for this medical procedure, these are the parameters that must be satisfied. If you do not satisfy those parameters, you have committed fraud. And that is what the consequence is. It is not saying what is right or wrong, meaning if 
you go back to, we'll just stick with supervision. So 10 years ago, if you were in a hospital outpatient department and you were treating patients with a linear accelerator and there was, this is not even true, there was no, we'll just say there's no physician in the building. Man, this is already problematic. I can't even use an example because it makes no sense. But if there's not a physician in the building when the linear accelerator is treating people, patients, and you build the government for those treatments, there were some interpretations of the regulations were that you were committing fraud. Now, was anyone hurt? No. Was bad medicine provided? No. Was, you know, if you think about it, for especially for our specialty, if you have somebody getting 44 fractions for prostate cancer, you set, you set everything up front, and if whether or not you are standing over the console for fraction 22 or 23, that's not really going to affect how that care is delivered. So that's this is a very, this is, and this is how I personally started to think about this and how I view all this is that this is coming from a place of safety and efficacy of are we providing the best possible care to the people who trust us with their lives. We talk about these things like a medical license is a driver's license and things like supervision are like the speed limit and they are not. And, and that is a very important distinction. And then the private payers all look to CMS and they develop their own sort of guidelines for if you're going to ask us to pay you for this, this is what may be satisfied. And then these days we have the benefit managers like Evacor who are administering the plans on behalf of the private carriers and on the government in a sense for the Medicare Advantage plans. And they have their own guidelines and so on and so forth. Supervision and the things of that nature are at their core intended to satisfy government requirements for getting paid. In an ideal world, those requirements, those parameters are about safety and efficacy, which is, I don't want to say usually not the case, but there are usually other things at play. And there is no law saying that you can only practice radiation medicine if you went and completed a radiation oncology residency and are board certified in radiation oncology and are physically present over the linear. So none of that is true. Technically, you could go and graduate from a medical school and complete two years of a family medicine residency program, drop out, but now you can get your license, assuming that you passed all your boards, you can get a license, you can plunk a linear accelerator. Well, so then you get into CON stuff. Let's say New Hampshire does not have CON laws. My home state of New Hampshire does not have certificate of need laws. Theoretically, if you are that physician who dropped out after two years in a family medicine residency, but got your license in New Hampshire, if you wanted, you could put a linear accelerator in downtown Keene, New Hampshire, my hometown, and you could treat people legally. What you couldn't do would be bill Medicare. You couldn't bill private carriers, maybe because you'd have to contract with them, but it'd be unlikely. You, If something went wrong and somebody sued you, you'd almost certainly lose. But legally, all those steps are okay. I'm definitely not saying do that. Now, the other thing with the linear accelerators is that there's other regulations and things that are certificate of need, but that's where this gets off track is how people think about these things. And, and similarly, I held licenses in multiple states. I have completed the radiation oncology residency. I'm board certified. I've done all those things, but tomorrow I could go rent an office space and open up a plastic surgery practice. I'm legally allowed to do that. And I never, I didn't even do a plastic surgery rotation in medical school. I've never done any of that in my whole life. But legally tomorrow, I could go perform a rhinoplasty, or at least what I think a rhinoplasty is. Now, again, if something went wrong, I would lose every lawsuit ever. And it would be unlikely that I could get OR privileges. And then actually don't know if sometimes you need certain certifications. So there's a lot of these guardrails in places to prevent things like that. But we've all seen the news. This doesn't work the way people think. And you think, that's the, the starting point for how we're talking about this is medical licenses are not driver's licenses and CMS regulations are not speed limit laws. And then, but there are several other layers to this. So certificate of need, 35 states, I believe, have something called certificate of need laws. And then there's a few others that have the functional equivalent. There's very few that don't. And what that says is that if you're going to drop some sort of very expensive piece of equipment, medical equipment into a area and within the state's borders, you got to have a good reason for it. And a linear accelerator is several million dollars. You can't just 
put one of those everywhere or anywhere in most places. And so that's one way that the government tries to regulate this radiation emitting devices. So you have the NRC for the actual sources, the radioactive sources. You have the FDA for radiation emitting devices. That can come into play. And that's why you see the, the term off-label where if you... So like I do low-dose radiotherapy for osteoarthritis. There are many devices out there, but they don't have 510k clearances by the FDA to market it as such. So I can do that, but you can't have a company who makes a radiation emitting device market. I don't think any of them are currently cleared. But so there's that. Then there's the Stark laws, the anti-kickback statues, and there are many guardrails that are put up now. And that's kind of what this whole enterprise is, that this is a highly regulated market. So I've gotten into disagreements with folks about this, where medicine in America is not free market capitalism. It is highly regulated. Worse, it is regulated differently on a state-by-state -state basis, which makes all of this so confusing. And even worse is that now we're deep into the era of consolidation, healthcare consolidation. And it wasn't that long ago where you had a lot of independent physicians, hospitals, those things. And when you were in the classic definition of private practice or the classic form of it, where you had to contract with payers, you had to bill, you had to do, there was a lot more knowledge about how this all works. And that is, is increasingly lost, really lost, which is, again, what, what prompted me to start doing things like this. But in the most recent data that I have seen, and I've said this in other places, about 75% of doctors, radiation oncologists, radiation people who practice radiation medicine are employed. And when you're an employee, you can still be in, you can be an academic employee. You can play, an employee just basically is, is how are you personally being compensated? Are you billing things as a contractor, as an independent contractor, or does a paycheck come to you from an organization? And whether that organization is the University of Vermont, like me, or my prior practice, which was on a professional services agreement, those are two, that's where that distinction comes from. So employee does not mean anything other than where your paycheck comes from. And I'm somebody can pick apart that definition. But part of why you saw that is that the regulations became so Byzantine and so complicated that it seemed easier for physicians to just be employed by an organization who could handle a lot of these things for them rather than do it themselves. But when you do that, you then lose that knowledge or don't even have the opportunity to gain that knowledge because you're not going to hear about this in residency. There's not, this isn't on your boards. And so this was things you had to learn by doing. And if you go right from residency to an employed position, which the majority of people are doing now, you are never going to learn these things. And so with that ignorance is how you get taken advantage of. And usually, and when I say that, I just really have to emphasize that don't attribute to malice so it can be attributed to stupidity, where I think most people are inherently good. I think most people are trying to do what's best. And I think the issue is in these complex systems, it's often just a tragedy to the commons where you have individual entities made up of individual people moving in ways that make sense for them at that time, but might have unintended downstream consequences of the whole emergent properties of complex systems. Then you get into this concept of what is supervision. And that's what, in my opinion, what is happening now is that radiation oncology coding and billing and legislation and regulation is so complicated and there's so few people left who know what it is. And in this moment, actually, the people you hear speaking about it on behalf of the legacy professional societies, there's just literally like five or fewer people. Now those people work or are in charge of companies or entities that have a lot more employees and stuff. But the majority of opinions you're hearing right now before Twitter and podcasts and all these things, we're just coming down from a few people. That's not good because an opinion is an opinion. And this is what I want to even out make more fair, have more voices. So to just recap, a doctor can get a license to practice medicine without having completed any specific residency. You do not need to be board certified in anything to legally practice medicine. You basically just need to graduate from an accredited medical school and have one or two years of supervised graduate medical education and pass your USMLE exams and you can be licensed and with, again, a bunch of murky caveats about the rest of that, but then licensing is done on a state-by-state -state basis and that there is no kind of national medical law, meaning when we talk about regulations, we're talking about billing Medicare 
and the parameters for which the government will pay you. And if you do not meet those parameters, but accept payment from the government, you are committing fraud. And that is different from any sort of law. Then the employee versus contractor, independent contractor. So this is confusing as well. When we used to talk about private practice or when people talked about private practice, they meant physicians who were practicing independently, billing patients, insurance, Medicare themselves, dealing with all that professional services contract, or if they owned the linear accelerator, handling the global payments, so on and so forth. There is no link. There is no official link between academic and private practice and employed or independent contractor. And so that's another important thing to, to keep in mind. Actually, recently, so while I'm with the University of Vermont, and obviously I am a W-2 employee of the University of Vermont, the group, the radiation medicine physicians here up until 2011 were actually private, meaning that they were independent contractors, but working at the University of Vermont. So they were academic private if that makes any sense. So this is why when we talk about these things, you, you can't easily define any of this. Which finally brings me to the arguably most important in this context, but also arguably the most confusing, which is a lot to say based on what I've just said, is the concept of a hospital outpatient department versus freestanding. So when you look at the supervision regulation, the, the I'm just going to say laws. So I hate trying to figure out what the appropriate terminology is. I'm going to say laws. You can hang me for it later. Whatever. So supervision laws, which asterisks, asterisks, asterisks. They are based around, are you in a hospital outpatient department or a freestanding center? You would think you know what those terms are. You do not. Now, this actually came up as part of the recent ACRO financial reform policy town hall thing that they did, which I was very appreciative of. And other legacy professional societies would do well to take note of what that looks like and could consider doing it themselves. But in the beginning of that talk, they brought up this definition of, of hospital outpatient and freestanding, because it does matter in the context of payments or reimbursement. Actually, arguably, it only matters in that context, in a sense, because that's how it's defined. But the there are different fee schedules. So when you're billing the government, you are billing them based on a certain fee schedule, based on how you are defined. And so part of, obviously, it's I have been pretty consistent about, I am not a fan of consolidation for many reasons, but part of the way that can be framed is the quote-unquote disappearance of private practice. Now, the definition of what is or is not academic or private is very different now, which will be a topic for a future episode, but it is not the same as we have always talked about it, and it changed quite rapidly. I feel a lot that freestanding is used in lieu of private practice, and they are absolutely not synonymous. And you saw in the beginning of that ACRO webinar, which by the way, they were very quick to post the recording of, which I also deeply appreciated and everyone should go watch that. The introduction by the gentleman, Jason, excellent name, strong name from Liberty Partners. He gave a talk or his part of the talk was touching on this and gave the statistic that it was like a 60-40 split where basically 60% were hospital outpatient and 40% were freestanding. Now, I believe based on the data that is out there, that is wrong. I don't want to say it was like a gross misrepresentation or wildly wrong or because the fact of the matter is that there is no, just like the number of practicing or radiation oncology physicians that are employed or whatever, we don't have a solid handle on that number. We also don't have a solid handle on this number. First, the to define what these are, you can't just look at a department and say, oh, that is not physically attached to a hospital, that is a freestanding center. That is wrong. Or you can't just say, oh, that department is staffed by a group who are operating under a professional services contract. That is a freestanding center because that is private practice. That is also wrong. The hospital outpatient department definition, which is important for billing, is based on, on a few different things. And so it is absolutely possible to identify as a hospital outpatient department, even when the building is physically separate from the main hospital building. And it has nothing to do with whether it's academic or private or if they're employed or independent contractors. So there are some key factors that would allow to bill under this designation. So number one, and the easiest one would be hospital ownership and control. 
So if the radiation department is owned and operated as part of the hospital, it is hospital outpatient. And so what that means is that the hospital has control over the operations, the staff, the finances, and basically the department should be integrated into the hospital's administrative and clinical structure. And so that right there answers, if, if you've ever wondered how these academic health networks work and you have what was commonly referred to as a satellite, what are they building under or what are they billing under? It's hospital outpatient. And so the other thing about this is not set in stone. It is theoretically possible to switch back and forth. And I don't have some smoking gun episode coming out on that. I know it, it is a thing that happens, but I don't have any sort of egregious stories to tell you about that. But it is basically whatever, and this is incentives are a superpower. That's the strongest lever that's out there. The department is incentivized to bill under whatever is going to net them the most reimbursement, which is usually hospital outpatient. But so you can't just look at it. It's, it's if a shop is owned and operated by hospital and hospital outpatient, then you can get into some other parameters about defining it. So there's licensure of the department must be licensed as part of the hospital. And that's usually the hospital is extending its existing license to cover the operation of the radiation department. This varies state by state. Then you have provider-based status. So the facility can apply for that, the provider-based status under Medicare rules, and it allows departments that are not physically located within the hospital's main building to be considered part of the hospital for Medicare billing purposes. So the qualifications are similar to the ownership and stuff of the administrative oversight, clinical integration, financial integration, public awareness. And the public awareness is, is an interesting one where I don't, and again, we should see if there's ever been anything like this, but it's theoretically possible in this world where you could have, let's say you were in a community and you knew that it would be easier in that community to have patients and referrals if they perceived you to be like an independent, like you were Joe Bob's mom and pop radiation zapping and other stuff practice. And you marketed yourself as such, but then it turns out you were actually part of academic megacorp united mega super bill you for everything you own secretly. I don't, so I don't think that's ever been tested. I don't think there's legal precedent for that, but I imagine you'd get in trouble for that. You can't do that theoretically. And then my favorite one, there's a few others, but my favorite one is the distance and location because this comes up or came up a lot in when you're trying to define if you are engaged in direct versus general. So in this argument about what is what, the question is always what counts as direct supervision, meaning that there is no distance set for any of this. The literal definition of the regulation of direct supervision was that the physician must be physically on the premises and in the suite of offices where some service is being performed. In the office setting, the physician must be present in the office suite and immediately available. That is defined as within earshot, not just reachable by beeper and not merely in the same building. You can really run with that. And that was where a lot of this, these problems came from anyway. What is within earshot? Within earshot is different for how loud I can be versus how loud my toddler can be. And so same deal here, where if you're trying to define freestanding versus hospital outpatient, if hospital ownership and operation controls is the end run of this, so it doesn't really matter beyond that. But there is nothing saying if MD Anderson down in Houston were to buy my hospital up here in Vermont and bill under their banner, is that allowed? I think so. There's, and especially Anderson's probably a bad example because they have lawyers that could run a country if they wanted. But that's the main point of this is that you can't use freestanding as synonymous with private practice. And you can't just look at a building and say, well, it's not connected to a hospital, therefore it's freestanding. It's, it's not like that at all. And so with that stat that they put up in the ACRO webinar of 60-40, as near as I can figure, it's actually probably closer to maybe only 25% of practices in this country left are freestanding. And so where I'm getting that from is piecing together other sources. So in 2021, Astro did an impact of COVID survey, and they sent it out to 509 radonks and got 117 responses back. And from that, so that was 2021, and that was 68% hospital outpatient, 32% freestanding. And then in 2016, RAND, one of the big think tanks that does a lot of various reports, they, they did a report and saw that there was billing that suggested that at least 57 to 65 percent of the billing volume was done in a hospital outpatient department and there's some other kind of smaller things but if you take the the most recent and most reasonable i think would be the 2021 covid survey where you saw 32 percent freestanding the if you drill down further into that and read into the tea leaves 
most of that is actually 21C Genesis Care. So if you annex the state of Florida, and obviously 21C is out in many other places, but I, I would hazard a guess that today, because even in the past two, three years since that survey was done, we've had even more consolidation and that when that survey was done, 21C was Genesis Care and then Genesis Care hadn't declared bankruptcy yet, which they're coming out of now. But so I, I would guess it's not 60, 40 hospital outpatient freestanding. It's probably 75, 25. And if you annex Florida, it's probably 15% or less. And that, but that does not mean that there's only 15 to 25% private practices because then what even is a private practice? It just means that there's not a lot of practices that are billing under freestanding rules. And this kind of becomes important for a different episode about finance reform or financial reform and how we should be defining that. But so I know that it's quite long of, of just trying to set the stage, but that's why this is so difficult and why the argument seems so, so silly sometimes is that you have to think about a lot of these things in terms of what is this definition of supervision? Why do we care? Why does the government care? What really applies to what and who and when? And so again, just to, now that we've done that, and I, I know I just said it briefly before, but what is supervision? So supervision in the sense of what we're talking about here refers to how a particular test treatment or procedure is taking place in terms of physician involvement. And so there's three main types of personal, direct, and general supervision. So personal supervision means that you're in the room yourself, like a surgeon making an incision. Direct means you're not in the room, but are immediately available, like you're sitting in the office next to your CT scanner. And, and the problematic definition that has been used is within earshot, which, what even is that? And general means that you're not physically nearby, but a test or treatment or procedure is taking place under your guidance and you're available by phone, or now we have the the virtual director, the virtual or the audiovisual communication of like FaceTime or whatnot. And once you can get past all the confusing definitions that even allow you to get this far, the question I had was how did this all get started? Like you can just assume there's a way that you can frame this and it you say to yourself, Oh, that makes sense, but it doesn't. And but even if it did, it had to start somewhere. So what and where and how and why? I can't quite tell. So I, it's, it hasn't always been this way. So Radonk didn't used to like spend this much time arguing about this or thinking about this. And it hasn't always been this way. And, but neither has things like IGRT, which is, you know, the culprit here for currently in the sense, but in, in talking with people, so I can't find any sort of official written published explanation for this as it pertains to us. And again, the more recent stuff as it pertains to us is often opinions of certain people, which is generally not correct. The closest I have been able to get to an official history is one that I'm going to piece together myself because no such thing as an official history of this exists. If you've ever gone digging into this, and this is partially why this is so confusing, is that there is no sort of singular rule book, legislative text, nothing. There is a weird hodgepodge of definitions and quote-unquote rules, and I'm just going to keep saying quote-unquote requirements and so on and so forth. That is really the essence of all this and why you can't go easily look up just the answer to this question. And so you'll have the Federal Register, you'll have comment periods from CMS, you'll have books written by legacy specialty societies or independent companies or organizations. And what I find most helpful for this is you'll have what are essentially white papers put out by various law firms. And this is why I went into medicine and not law, because at the end of the day, none of this is stone tablet stuff. And it's really just opinion, which is very frustrating. And you can assume you understand a thing and then something's going to happen and some case is going to get argued and there'll be good or bad lawyers and then what you thought was true is no longer true and whatever. Going off a white paper from a law firm from back in the day, the effective January 1st, 1998, CMS rolled out a new law, regulation, whatever, that all diagnostic tests, with few exceptions, require some level of physician supervision. The inherent question there is, I guess, that prior to that, it was just assumed like there was no official parameter about this. But so the the supervisor requirements applied to diagnostic x-ray tests. And of course, we're not clearly defined because it never is. And then so they will continually do that. They will say something. They will confuse everyone. Everyone will complain. And then they will issue new guidance. And the new guidance ends up being just as confusing and rinse and repeat for 
decades upon decades and decades. The And this was back in the day when freestanding centers were more of a thing. And so in this particular rule change, it was interpreted as meaning for not hospitals. So literally that these new supervisory requirements were should not have affected hospital outpatient departments. And because this was the era of independent diagnostic testing facilities and every everything CMS does, everything the government does is a reaction to something they perceive as negative and needing to control or whatnot. So the for direct supervision, it was, again, stated to apply to things like x-rays other than those listed by general supervision procedures, which is a whole other things. But the first part of things to note, and this is going again back to 1998, exceptions to supervision regulations. So first, diagnostic tests furnished to hospital inpatients or outpatients will not be subject to these regulations where the outpatient tests are performed by or under the supervision of the hospital or where the inpatient tests are performed under arrangement with the hospital and billed by the hospital. Second, diagnostic tests personally performed by a physician or services billed as incident to physician services would not be subject to the requirements. Finally, the regulations will not apply to diagnostic tests performed by hospitals, the office of a patient's attending or consulting physician, rural health clinics, or federally qualified health centers. And so this brings up the next most favorite thing to talk about, which is incident to billing. And if you are confused, don't worry, you're supposed to be confused. And I, I still am not entirely sure if I understand what incident to billing is, but incident to services are essentially Medicare Part B allows a physician or certain other non-physician practitioners to maximize their productivity by receiving reimbursement for certain services furnished by auxiliary personnel on an incident to basis. So the ability to utilize this category, this classification of incident to building is subject to various requirements and limitations. And those are, as always, put in the federal regulations, and then there's LCDs and MACs and yada. So who would this apply to? And basically, non-physician practitioners may provide professional services without direct physician supervision, as always subject to state laws, and bill directly for those services. And so if you do that, so services performed and billed directly by NPPs, the non-physician practitioners are reimbursed at a lower rate. However, when an NPP's services are provided as an auxiliary personnel, they may be covered as incident two services, in which case incident two requirements would apply, and then they're reimbursed at 100%. What are these incident two requirements? Basically, incident to a physician's professional services means that these services or supplies are furnished as an integral, although incidental, part of the physician's personal professional services in the course of diagnosis or treatment of an injury or illness. The services must relate to an existing course of treatment. The incident two rules do not apply to a new patient or when treating an existing patient for a new illness or injury. And the per chapter 15, section 60 of the Medicare Benefits Policy Manual, the more precise definitions of those, again, integral, although incidental part of the physician's professional services, commonly rendered without charge or included in the physician's bill, meaning that you're not, these services are not separately reimbursable by Medicare. They are of a type that are commonly furnished in physician's offices or clinics. They are furnished by the physician or by auxiliary personnel under the physician's supervision. And this is where you get into the direct in general and the PHE with the virtual direct. We'll get there in a second. And these incident two services require the physician's ongoing participation in management, meaning the physician cannot merely initiate treatment and allow the auxiliary personnel to continue to treat the patient unassisted. Instead, the physician must be actively involved in the course of treatment and then provided in accordance with the state law. And who, who does this apply to more precisely? Any sort of professional can be considered auxiliary personnel means basically an individual who is acting under the supervision of a physician regardless of whether that individual is an employee, least employee, independent contractor, or of the same entity that employs or contracts with a physician. Basically, any anyone, if a physician is employed by the hospital or working in the hospital, and an individual is performing a service incident to the physician's prescription, or whatever you want to call it, and is also an employee of the hospital, that counts. That's important for later. Very confusing, I know. 
and because this is so confusing, I'm intentionally trying to repeat myself here a bit just because you're if you've never heard this stuff before, you're not going to get it hearing it one time. Heck, I have to basically relearn this stuff, I don't know, every couple months or some ridiculousness. This stuff is insane. But it, the essence of the story up to this point, beyond all the other definitions, is that there wasn't really any sort of explicit regulations around supervision as we would think of it today up until that rule in 1998, and that was interpreted as to apply to freestanding centers, essentially. So then from 1998 to 2009, that was the law of the land. And so then in 2009, CMS basically changed their minds and said that these direct supervision rules applied to hospital outpatient departments as well. And and more importantly, they were backdated, or meaning that they were backwards applicable, even when people didn't think it was, which caused a problem. Really, the timeline is just absolutely remarkable here. And just to recap, you have that first period of radiation oncology troubles, the troubles marked, in my opinion, by the 1986 Daniel Flynn Red Journal manpower crisis in radiation oncology paper. And then over the next 14 years, the specialty worked to contract and go to from three years to four years after internship residency length. And then IMRT came out 2001, 2002, changed changed the game, as they say. And so we had a really good run from 2002 to about 2012, but the cracks started around multiple fronts. And so one crack was this, where you had these rule interpretations from 1998 to 2009, 2010, about direct supervision not being applicable in a hospital outpatient department. What that caused was a whole bunch of whistleblower cases, some very famous whistleblower cases around the supervision of radiation therapy services, which we'll cover in the next episode, I believe. But so you have this really tight sort of window of issues where the government, the, the IMRT money was noted. We were not effective in defending ourselves. And so you had this rule change about supervision. And then you had the New York Times series of articles on the radiation boom from 2008 to 2010 or so. Then you had the 2012 SGR report and the New England Journal picking up on the SGR report. And then in from 2012 to 2015 or so, you had all these bundling and then take us up through modern history. So we're really punctuated by these 10-year cycles. And But to drill down, again, I wish there was a singular sort of story here, but in 2017, there was a report by MedPAC that was submitted about the problems with what also was created. So we haven't even talked about the tiered structure of supervision that then was created as a result of all this. So MedPAC is the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which is an independent congressional agency that was formed by the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. And it's basically there to advise Congress on Medicare stuff. Now, as is classic government since the beginning of time, not just America, but advise is not dictate. Advise is not write law. So they can say stuff and the government can do whatever it wants. So in December 2017, they submitted something called a report to the Congress, Physician Supervision Requirements in Critical Access Hospitals in Small Rural Hospitals. And the executive summary begins with the 21st Century Cures Act of 2016 instructed CMS to not enforce supervision requirements for outpatient therapeutic services in critical access hospital, otherwise known as CAH, in small rural hospitals through 2016. The act also mandated that the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, the MedPAC, report to the Congress about the effects of extension of the enforcement instruction on Medicare beneficiaries' access to quality of care, as well as its economic impact on the affected hospitals. In 2009, prior to the passage of the Cures Act, CMS had clarified the agency's then-current policy that a physician must be immediately available to furnish assistance and direction throughout the performance of an outpatient therapeutic procedure, as in direct supervision. CAH and rural hospital representatives subsequently expressed concerns that, because they have difficulty recruiting physicians to practice in rural areas, the direct supervision requirement may limit beneficiary access to care in their hospitals. In response to these concerns, CMS instructed all Medicare administrative contractors 
not to evaluate or enforce the supervision requirements for therapeutic services in CAH and rural hospitals with 100 or fewer beds from 2010 to 2013. The Congress extended this instruction not to enforce supervision requirements from 2013 to 2016. CMS is continuing non-enforcement in 2018 and 2019. There is currently a legal and regulatory gap in the enforcement instruction for 2017. So then the final paragraph here of the executive summary really summarizes where where the change to general supervision in 2020 came from, because a lot of people felt, if you weren't following along with this, really, that it was out of nowhere. It really wasn't out of nowhere. It's just radiation. We live in a bubble. And so the sort of core issue with all this was not only did the clarification in 2009 set people up for KTM whistleblower cases retroactively, meaning back to 2001, where there wasn't such a clarity and concrete language around this. The system that was in place now basically was not only ill-defined, it was not enforced uniformly. And it's really basically equivalent to saying, all right, we're going to have a speed limit. The speed limit for driving on a highway must be reasonable, and we will enforce it in Maine and Vermont, but not New Hampshire, because reasons. So before we go on, here's the final paragraph. We understand that CMS's general policy is to initially treat all hospital outpatient therapeutic services as requiring direct supervision and then use input from an advisory panel to determine when a level of supervision other than direct may be appropriate. The Commission believes that CMS should use clinical judgment regarding the patient's safety when deciding the most appropriate supervision level for outpatient therapeutic services and that its clinical decision should apply to both urban and rural hospitals. CMS could also consider whether using telehealth, such as video communication, during the delivery of therapeutic services, is clinically appropriate for specific services. The Commission urges CMS to further clarify how the agency defines immediately available and interruptible in the direct supervision requirement for outpatient therapeutic services. In so doing, CMS should provide a maximum time required for a physician to arrive on site if needed during the therapeutic service. So then in the body of the report, I'm just going to use some of the language. It describes this timeline arguably, hopefully better better than me, hopefully clearer than me, considering that these are the people who do these sorts of things, talking about what happened when CMS, it was really part of the passage of the Cures Act in the 2009 payment system rulemaking. What happened when they did that is that they created all these new regulations, but then the the language within the regulations did not have their own definition. And well, here we are. Prior to the passage of the Cures Act during the 2009 payment system rulemaking process for Medicare hospital outpatient services and ambulatory surgical centers, ASC, CMS restated and clarified the agency's then current policy in place since 2001 that outpatient therapeutic services for Medicare beneficiaries delivered in a hospital must be directly supervised by an appropriate physician or NPP. CMS does not indicate the specialty of the physician or NPP who can provide the supervision. Over the years, CMS has added flexibility to and partially clarified the definition of direct supervision. For example, adding that emergency department ED physicians can provide direct supervision if they are interruptible. The industry is concerned, though that, since CMS has held that the supervision policy has been in place since 2001, the entire hospital community, both rural and urban, is open to potential recoupments and whistleblowers who can claim that a hospital did not have appropriate supervision requirements in place back to 2001. So the most interesting thing to me was the creation of the tiered structure. And, and so to really zoom out, as always, whenever anything like this is done, meaning some sort of regulation about requirements or certification or training or professional identity, at the end of the day, all of this should be, in an ideal world, about efficacy and safety. So is the things that are being done, are they providing care or enabling care that is more effective or more safe and they 
by the converse of that, are they preventing unsafe or ineffective treatment? And the question becomes, all right, if you have this exception for rural or critical access hospital, so you're saying direct supervision is required in urban centers, but general supervision is okay in rural centers, you would have to assume that the patients being treated in rural centers would either have a higher incidence of safety problems or horror outcomes. And so the MedPAC crew interviewed a whole bunch of the CAH representatives and asked them that question. All of the CAH representatives explained that they put quality of care and patient safety first when deciding whether to offer therapeutic services to patients. For example, one hospital representative said that the hospital's oncologist refers high-acuity patients to begin chemotherapy in a large hospital, one that is more adept at handling complications, and if no complications arise with the initial treatment, then the patients can receive subsequent treatments at the local CAH. In our conversations with CMS personnel, they noted that no patient safety concerns have been raised about hospitals, rural or urban, using inappropriate physician supervision for outpatient therapeutic services. CMS also noted that there is currently no way to monitor this requirement through administrative data, as in submitted claims, so it is challenging to enforce. The Medicare programme would likely learn of any concerns about patient safety due to inappropriate supervision through a whistleblower. And that opinion in the MedPAC report submitted to Congress is based on interviews, or I guess, I don't know if they're rendering an opinion or they're just reporting what they found, but they went and asked all these people in these critical access hospitals, are you seeing higher safety issues? And they, the answer was no. And remember, this is for, this isn't just about radiation. This was about all this stuff, all the things, because it's a broad sweeping regulation. And this was the thing I argued about on X recently with some of the Astro leadership and where there's this debate about the, the virtual supervision for OTVs or, and how Astro, so as we all know, anyone who was a, at least a resident before the pandemic or in this field before the pandemic, Astro very hardline was on the direct supervision train. Now, part of that was a reaction to what happened around 2010. So when the New York Times series of articles ran and the whistleblower cases started, Astro's reaction was to go on the defensive and just basically hide behind safety is no accident and rattle the sword of Royals, the, the Radiation Ecology Incident Learning System and the, the booklets and all these things and saying, look how safe we are, look how safe we are. Because the lamentation from the public or from the media was radiation unsafe, radiation bad. And it was obviously a pretty ineffectual response. But as part of that, this snowballed, this avalanche into hugging the direct supervision rule. And it's hard to imagine for those of us early career residents that there wasn't, this wasn't always the way it was. This is a much more recent development. And so when the pandemic happened and the virtual direct supervision stuff came out, because it's, it's been very weird if really just this timeline is so bizarre because the change from direct to general supervision, CMS dropped this rule change with the Cures Act 2009-2010, basically saying, oh, direct supervision for everything. So then we had a decade of that. So then in November of 2019, they said, oh, wait, no, hospital patient, it's, it is general, it is general. And then that took effect January 1st, 2020. So in response to that, Astro and at the ACR, I believe the ACR, and, and these kind of legacy issues or legacy bodies came out and said, oh, no, it doesn't apply to us. And so the then we had the four years of what we've been doing, which is using either what's considered virtual direct, meaning as long as you can have real-time audiovisual communication, you can... It's considered direct supervision, meaning if you can, if a therapist FaceTimes you, that counts, or actually acknowledging general supervision in a hospital at patient department. And, but now there's this debate about, should we walk that back? And if the certain individuals at a certain legacy professional society may perhaps have tried to sneak in some rule changes without having to go through the comment period and that may have been caught. And they're trying to walk back this. And so the Astro chair immediate past president whatever tweeted that they were going to return to what it used to be like a couple of years ago and and as per usual i directly asked this question in public and nobody decides to answer me which is not listen legacy professional society you know who you are all right if you want if you disagree with me it would probably work better to respond to me when i ask you a question in public point out a flaw in your argument I'm not a troll, all right? I'm using my 
real name. I'm using my real account. I am not engaging in ad hominem attacks. I am asking in a public forum so we can all see together. You consistently ignore me. You just never answer my questions. And yet again, this is another one where if you are going to say that we need to walk back what has been working for four years, that's insane. Think about this. So I want to see what your evidence is for why we need to walk this back. Because for the past three, four years, we have had general supervision and hospital outpatient departments. We have virtual direct supervision just in general. If you're going to walk that back, you're telling me that you have direct knowledge of increased safety incidents or lack of efficacy. I am aware of zero evidence. I have heard zero complaints from anyone, and I have not witnessed anything. I've been in this field this whole time. I've seen zero issues. And what do you got? What's your argument here? So just to return, folks, to, to how it used to be, this is Astro's battle cry from, this is one of their... 2018 white papers. This is before the general supervision change, but this was their opinion. All hospital outpatient diagnostic tests performed in conjunction with radiation therapy must follow the physician supervision requirements for the individual tests, as indicated above. Additionally, diagnostic tests must be supervised by a physician and may not be supervised by non-physician practitioners. The supervisory physician must have within his or her state scope of practice and hospital-granted privileges, the knowledge, skills, ability and privileges to perform the service. The vast majority of image guidance services in radiation therapy involve stereoscopic X-ray or computed tomography guidance and are therefore subject to the direct supervision requirement as described previously. Direct supervision of outpatient diagnostic tests requires that the supervising physician must be physically present on campus and immediately available, interruptible and able to furnish assistance and direction throughout the performance of the procedure. And this is always, I honestly think that this is perhaps how I really got started in this question or in this particular topic, why my interest was so sparked other than multiple practical purposes. But I, it has always driven me nuts that the... IGRT, so the image-guided radiation therapy, like things like cone beams or KV, what we do before turning the beam on, that this has somehow been twisted into a diagnostic test. Now, the language and the regulations are a little vague, so they, they really do just say x-rays. And if you try to find, because only, only radiation medicine is weird enough to fight about this, so if you ask what is a diagnostic test, like Medicare does not have a, an official definition, as it were, of just saying a diagnostic test is blah, blah, blah. They have versions of that. But to me, as a physician, a diagnostic test means you are doing something to try to figure out what is happening, meaning you don't know why a patient is sick yet, or you're trying to get the scope of disease, meaning you're trying to like stage or work up. And IGRT is not that. So IGRT you can use the word incident too. IGRT has performed incident to radiation therapy. The only reason you are doing that cone beam, doing that IGRT, is to make sure your therapeutic radiation is being delivered as prescribed. It is a therapy. It is not a diagnostic test. And yes, I can see how someone with an agenda would see the language and the regulation from CMS and say that x-rays, and that's because that's basically what it says, it's just a diagnostic test is x-rays, and say, aha, cone beams, KVs, MVs, these are x-rays, therefore these are diagnostic tests. Because this is always wrapped up in every other argument, I've never had anyone, I've never gotten to have this debate with anyone who actually has an opinion that they formed on their own, and that makes me sad. And I wish we lived in a world where people could debate me on this, because that would be, if before in the old days when it was still considered direct supervision in hospital at patient departments, if I was ever the subject of a Ketam whistleblower case, that would be where I'd hang my hat. Like, you're telling me that IGRT requires direct supervision because it is a diagnostic test. I say it is not. Yes, it is x-rays, but it is not a diagnostic test. And it is pretty crazy to me to even attempt that argument. But Alas, that argument is a moot point. But if anyone wants to talk about it on the internet, I, I would like to talk about that. But And so I've decided I'm going to make this because we're already at an hour here or whatever. I'm going to do a multi-part episode. That is the history of how we got into this argument, more or less. And the so the things that I think about with when I finally put all this together, 
because to me, once January 1st, 2020 hit, and then certainly when the public health emergency was declared and virtual direct supervision was rolled out, I think it's pretty obvious what, what the rules are right now. But for direct supervision in the previous decade, incident to services, I find the interpretation or how we talk about this to be incredibly insulting to our radiation therapists. Because what is the actual delivery of radiotherapy? We do the upfront stuff of doing all the, the planning and going back and forth with dosimetry and physics and so on and so forth. When somebody's actually on a course of radiation therapy, we have professionals, people who went to school, who took board exams, who are licensed by their state, who are called radiation therapists. And their entire purpose in this process is to safely and effectively deliver the prescribed radiotherapy. And they are the ones it's borderline personal supervision now. Obviously, you can't be in the room when you're delivering external beam radiation therapy, but it is a higher level than direct supervision. I guess you could get really pedantic about this, but these certified professionals are delivering a prescribed treatment and are engaged in 1.5 times direct supervision, whatever. They're, they're, they're right there. And I would consider that incident two by these definitions, in a hospital outpatient department, that is incident to, that is direct to personal supervision by our therapist. And similar with nursing, because you gotta ask yourself the question, going back to safety and efficacy. So one, do we not trust our therapists to do their jobs? The ASRT should have been up in arms about this, in my opinion, because why don't we just pull some high school kid off the street and just train them up for a couple months and just have them do it? If Why put, why have this whole profession dedicated to this. And then for those of you who hang out on X like I do, the the last real troll left, I used to go by five prime UTR, whatever he goes by now, get into this with me a couple of weeks back of basically when we're talking about virtual supervision of OTBs of this, I'm going to just, I'm going to try to get through this without laughing. The, his counter example of why we shouldn't do this would be that a, a patient was asymptomatic and had a temp of 103. And so then my question was, okay, why did you need to physically be there for that? And the response was that he, I don't even remember, it was, his implication was that he didn't trust the nurse to do vitals, which, so I'll tell you guys right off, I am not going around repeating vital signs on OTV day. When a staff member brings me, says patient's ready, tells me some stats, I will ask them to repeat the vitals. And even I, I'm not personally doing it. I will ask them to repeat it if something is weird, but I'm not doing it. And then I'm certainly not going around rechecking. That's insane. That's insulting. And so then he said, no, no, I don't remember what his argument was. But then I asked, okay, so what did you do? And in this asymptomatic, and then it was a prostate patient. So it was an asymptomatic gentleman that he was treating for prostate cancer who had a vital sign temperature, 103, no other vital sign abnormalities. He ordered a respiratory panel. And I don't even know if he ever really answered me. And that's a count. This is, you either got the legacy specialty society not answering questions or saying we need to roll the supervision stuff back to the old days of direct supervision. And then you ask them why, and there's silence. And then you got these other people saying, oh, it's unsafe. They could provide a clinical example of a nurse giving them vital signs. And then they were somehow physically needed for that. And to me, both those things are saying, you don't trust your nurses. You don't trust your radiation therapists. And that's insane. This, the perceived, do you people not have enough work to do? That must be it. So in my day-to-day, -day, I have, these are not things I worry about because I don't have time to worry about them. If, if you are so bored at work that you're going around double-checking vital signs, I, no wonder you're worried about this. Your, your job really is at risk. Some of us don't have jobs like that, and that'll be in the next sort of episode. But we'll end there. The next episode will be about the change and more about kind of the infamous Ketam whistleblower lawsuits, because the point of doing this now is also that there's a recent court case. So now that I figured out how to use the court systems, did you guys know? So all these court documents, they're public records. You have to pay for them. So they're 10 cents a page. That's very interesting when you're using the internet. It's like a convenience fee for a credit card. Like it's one thing when you cover the transactional cost, but if you tack a convenience fee on it, very strange that the government has a electronic database of court documents and to access this and it's 10 cents per page. But anyway, 
in doing so in the research for the 21c episode there is now a precedent so uh, there's a, a court precedent a case precedent very very ex exhaustive basically substantiating my opinion and that astro is wrong by district court but we i don't want to do another two three hour episode so we'll just end it there in a cliffhanger so next episode will be whistleblower cases the new laws rules whatever and going over the case precedent this might be a three-parter i don't know the point is as always the goal should be to provide excellent and safe care for our patients regulation should be enabling that and as guardrails to prevent psychopaths and regulation for regulation's sake is bad and continuity without progress is stagnation till next time This has been a Photon Media production. Don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to us. Be well and be mom.